Uh, thank you all for being here. Can you hear me all right? I don't, this is supposed to be on. I did, we don't want feedback, but uh, I don't want people to miss a single word. Uh, not so much my words, but uh, those of uh, our, uh, our guests this morning. Uh, we have uh, out-of-town guests from Virginia and from California. Uh, the brackets I don't see yet today. They're supposed to be here, I think, from Texas and Illinois. Uh, so I'm going to speed things along by welcoming all of you to this meeting, and I'm going to suggest that we relax for a moment and uh, get acquainted with G.K. Chesterton. Please. I think I see him in the back of the room. I do. I do, in fact, see G.K. Chesterton. Please uh, welcome G.K. As we know him. Prohibition when I applied for a passport to come to your country. Instead, I was I was asked if I was an anarchist. <laughs> it was right there on the form. I I didn't know what to put, and so I I looked at the next line. It it asked me if I was a polygamist. <laughs> I said I again I didn't know what to put. Whether the forty-seven women with me were all my secretaries or. Or if uh, I thought of writing not so stupid or, or not so lucky. <laughs> but then I read the third line. It, it asked me if I approved of overthrowing the government of the United States by force of arms. And again, I didn't know what to put. Uh, but I didn't think I could possibly leave three in a row blank. I would never be permitted in. <laughs> so in response to that third question, I wrote the following. I said I didn't know whether I approved of overthrowing the government of the United States by force of arms, but I would much prefer to answer such a question at the end of my journey rather than the beginning. <laughs> well, well, I wanted to be very careful about what I'm saying here. I'm uh, asked to talk about Mr. Mankin, <clears throat> and so one must be quite careful. Excuse me if I must read a bit of what I have put together. I would like to begin my commentary by noting that uh, Mr. Mencken and I have two things in common. We are both journalists, and we are both editors. <laughs> there is, however, this difference. Uh, unlike Mr. Mencken, I am a very bad editor. In fact, the difference between us is really that I am the worst editor in the world. In fact, I made that quite clear when I assumed the editorship of my brother's publication, my brother Cecil. It was called The New Witness. The year was 1916, and my younger brother Cecil had gone off to fight in the Great War. I was asked, by the way, while I was walking in the streets of London, why I wasn't out at the front. A young lady stopped me cold and asked me that. And I said to her, young lady, if you'd kindly step around this way, you'd quite, quite much see that I am already in out at the front. Well, Cecil, before we go any further, this brings me to another difference between Mr. Mencken 
and myself. That war was a great war against a great evil, Prussianism. It was a war that the United States should have entered a good deal sooner. And it war a war that should have ended not with an armistice, but with a victory. And I fear that because it ended with an armistice, there will come another, perhaps even greater war, to finish what was not finished in 1918. But I, I was talking about my editorial abilities, or lack thereof, wasn't I? To clinch that point, uh, permit me to borrow from my autobiography of a bad editor, which I published in the New Witness on December 7th, 1916. And I quote, <laughs> I no more expected to be an editor than to be the policeman in the street. And I faintly hope that all my faults, especially of omission, will be put down to incompetence and not discourtesy. But I cannot throw off the customary sensation that I am writing for somebody else's paper. At the present moment, I find myself writing this loose meditation which grows more lumbering with every line until I feel that no editor will print it. Then I remember with wonder that I am the editor. This gives me a glow of relief for a time, and I feel how fine it will be to sit in an office chair and open some promising communication from a contributor. Then I remember with a horrid sinking feeling of the heart that I am the contributor. Sooner or later, I suppose, my two capacities will collide in some way. At that point, I shall no doubt write to myself to say that I regret that I, I cannot find use for my interesting contribution. Then I will probably find myself writing back to ask myself why, in that case, I have not had the decency to return my manuscript. <laughs> in all of this, I can only promise not to take myself too seriously in either function, being already comfortably habituated to looking like a fool in both. In any case, I am bound to do editorial work badly, if only because I find it so interesting. The job of an editor is like life itself, and the chief trouble of life is that there is nothing dull about it. It is not a waste of monotony, but a jungle of distractions. We hear of editors yawning over heaps of tiresome trash, and while it's true that cartloads of things arrive on my desk that are not worth printing, I would hardly admit that they are not worth reading. Sometimes the communications which are impossible to publish are really the most delightful to read. In truth, it is in the writings of those whom I respectfully describe as lunatics that I often find something to read that is livelier than literature itself. In any case, I know that I invariably learn something about human nature or public opinion from any and everything that I receive. I, I suppose it, it, really, it really comes down to this. It is precisely because I am so enthusiastically, so edi utterly editorial, that I cannot be an editor. I never saw a letter, published or unpublished, 
to which I did not want to add a note as long as an essay. If I seem oblivious to a book sent last week, it is because I am still occupied with an article suggested by a postcard I received last month. Really, nine times out of ten, the questions asked by the average man are exceedingly intelligent questions. And if the answers are not always worthy of the questions, that is not generally the fault of the many, but rather of the few. More specifically, it is the fault of the stale oligarchy which rules almost the whole of our news and our education. It is not that the man in the street is stupid. At the worst, what he is, is stupefied. More often than not, he is not so much of a dupe uh, that he cannot possibly be called a dunce. Very few of the 10 million Englishmen who read newspapers know that there are only about 10 men who own them. Those 10 million haven't the faintest idea that there has long existed an omnipotent private censorship of the press, that every fact they read is filtered through a carefully constructed instrument differing only from the Inquisition in being so thoroughly irresponsible. As we don't have censorship of the press, more often than not we have censorship by the press. The common man is not in the smallest degree stupid because he does not know these things. I venture to hope that he will be very much the reverse of stupid when he does come to know them. Well, that is the essence of my autobiography of a bad editor. I don't know if Mr. Mencken would consider me a bad editor, but I do know that we had and have different goals as editors. My major goal was to contribute to my brother Cecil's effort to root out corruption, political and economic. Yes, my younger brother. Do you know when he came home after being born? I was about five. I turned to my parents and I said, this is wonderful. Now I shall have an audience. <laughs> and for the next 35 years, we argued. We argued about everything. But never once, ladies and gentlemen, did we quarrel. The quarrel should never get in the way of a good argument. And of course, we could agree, especially on that subject of the Great War. And we agreed on my promotion of what I call distributism, as opposed to capitalism and socialism. Anything big is by definition wrong. Distributism means that property should be distributed widely. Property, as I see it, is like muck. It is only good if it is spread around. Property is good for every man. If it is not good for every man, then I say we should all become courageous communists. But if it is good for man, then it is good for every man. I also sought to use my paper to advance Christendom over paganism. <laughs> I know the men, many people of my age were lamenting the fact that the young of England had become pagan. My response was really, I wish they were pagan. Then there would be some hope. Completely beyond. They have no sense 
They had no sense at all beyond the material world. Pagans at least had a sense of that, didn't they? But they didn't think wine simply wine. It was a god. And they didn't think corn was simply corn. They thought it was a goddess. That's all where did Christianity come from? The pagans. As an editor, I refuse to apologize for England's fight in the Great War. I refuse to back away from what I regarded as the German threat to Europe, or from the threat that barbarism in general poses to civilization. So let me be clear, unlike the American Mercury, the New Witness was a political paper, not really a literary one. My hope was that the New Witness would be a prophetic paper, full of warnings of a bleak future. Of course, like any true prophet, I also hoped that I would be wrong. In 1919, I wrote the following. For decades, we have been tolerating things that all ages have denounced, things that very few ages have even tolerated. We have not been progressing toward a morality that nobody understood. We have been violating a morality that everyone understood. And our real progress will begin when we know that we are on the wrong road. I wrote a piece in that magazine in the middle of the 1920s about the Soviet Union. I said it wouldn't last. The Bolshevik Revolution runs against human nature. Because again, it is in our nature to hold things, to have a peace of heart. And there will be a rebellion against it. And the real revolution that we must worry about is not the Bolshevik Revolution. It is the Social Revolution, which runs right up against our moral feelings and it feeds into our moral feelings. That's the revolution that will be much more difficult to deal with. And do I believe in progress? Only if there is a standard against which to judge things. For the most part, the world doesn't progress. It wobbles. It wobbles this way and that way, but it does not progress. I know that Mr. Mencken is skeptical of progress as well. He has written that there is such a thing as progress that lies very much in getting rid of old ideas than in acquiring new ones. I share his skepticism about new ideas, but I do not necessarily agree with his desire to get rid of old ones. I'm especially speaking here, of course, of Christianity and the standards it supplies. How else, again, are we to measure progress? Certainly by, not by Mr. Mencken's materialism or his Darwinianism or his, his uh, relativism. At this historical moment, we see around us a degree of license that can rightly be called pagan. We are also seeing a destruction of liberty that can only be called Puritan. Here, Mr. Mencken and I do share a very real concern. Puritanism and all that it means. And I think like Mr. Mencken, I don't know if he would agree with my little prayer, but I think the spirit of it he would agree with. We should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. Puritanism aside, I do worry about things that Mr. Mencken does not seem to worry about. And unlike Mr. Mencken, I have a sneaking tenderness for the common people, 
as well as a weakness for their common sense. I know that Mr. Mencken has suspicions about democracy. I have no suspicions about what I mean by democracy. And what is that? Democracy is not the majority. It is the whole. Democracy is merely the honor of the citizen. And citizens of a real democracy are quite capable of being very honorable people. I understand that Mr. Mencken thinks that democratic societies invariably tend to be Puritan societies. To be sure, in 17th century England, the parliamentarians were Puritans. But surely they were not Democrats. In truth, they were the worst sort of aristocrats. Certainly the Puritans who seized the abbey lands of England were not Democrats. So let me be clear. In 17th century England, the people ruled least when the Puritans ruled most. Mr. Mencken, I think, is wrong. It's not that Democrats always tend to be Puritans. Rather, it's the Puritans always pretend to be Democrats. Actually, Mr. Mencken attributes a good many things to democracy that are really peculiar to American democracy and especially to an industrial democracy, assuming that that is a democracy at all. You see, an industrial state means a centralized state, and centralized systems always mean rule by the few. The larger truth of all of this is that those who developed the democratic doctrine in modern times did not intend it for anything resembling the modern world. They intended it, I think, for a very ancient world. Certainly, the founders of your country were thinking about the agricultural commonwealths of antiquity, weren't they? They certainly knew nothing of the world of steam and steel that their descendants were going to inherit. For example, I think it is highly doubtful that Thomas Jefferson would have expected the vast and vague American society of, day, of today to be a democracy, if anything, I think he would have thought it, however reluctantly, as an occasion for a Caesar. Now, while I will defend what I think to be democracy and what I mean by it, like Mr. Mencken, I am not here to defend politicians. Here, Mr. Mencken and I probably agree more than we disagree. Let me put it this way. I say politics should be left to the politicians. They're the only people dull enough not to be bored by it. Not surprisingly, journalists do not always tell the truth about politicians. What does surprise me is that so very often journalists do not even know the truth about them. This much certainly is true about all politicians. Politician with a future is a politician with a forgotten past. It's not true. That we are ruled by men of ordinary ignorance. What is true is that we are ruled by men of extraordinary ignorance. <laughs> well, I have gone on quite long here. I trust that you have... I want one more. I have spent some time examining your system of public education. I know that Mr. Mencken has his suspicions and doubts about American public education and the money spent on it as I do, but I don't know that we have the same doubts and reservations. 
Let me return to democracy and what it means for a moment. Having the freedom to rule ourselves also means being able to determine what is taught to our own children, rather than having the state decide what shall be taught. You Americans talk much about compulsory education. I worry that you are much more eager to compel than to educate. Too often the aim of public education is the very contrary of education. It is the destruction of education and even of experience. It is designed to make men forget the past, forget the facts, forget the very memories of their own lives. Well, I understand and I, I, I can't say that I have read it all, but, uh, but Mr. Mencken, of course, has written a book called In Defense of Women in which he makes the case, of course, that women are the supreme realists of the race, that they see with bright and horrible eyes. Sometimes, of course, this means that women never marry at all. You see, men make love by bragging, and women make love by listening. Sometimes women can't go on any longer listening without snickering. <laughs> I know that he has written I know that he has his doubts about marriage. But I do believe in the institution, and I understand that he has now entered into that state as well. I am told now that in the name of the sexual revolution, divorce has become much easier. I understand now that two people in some states may be <coughs> something called incompatibility of temperament. Don't you Americans understand that's the basis for a marriage? <laughs> Men and women are by definition incompatible. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? Well, let me simply conclude on this note. Is a good marriage possible? Of course it is especially if it takes place at a moment of exaggerated tenderness. The sexes, you see, are like two stubborn pieces of iron. And if they are to be welded together successfully, it must be while they're still red hot. Every woman must come to terms with the fact that her husband-to-be is a selfish beast. Because, of course, every man is a selfish beast, at least by the standard of the woman. But let her learn that about him while she is still wonderfully in love. And every man must come to terms with the fact that his wife-to-be is sensitive to the point of madness. Because, of course, every woman is madly sensitive, at least by the standard of the man. But let him learn that about her, while her madness is still more intriguing to him than anyone else's sanity. Thank you very much. Thank you, G.K. Uh, Chuck Chalberg from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Soon to be on, uh, well, no, we missed Prairie Home Companion too late. Uh, but we appreciate it, Chuck, so much. Uh, our speaker this morning uh, is Jeff Buchheit, who is executive director of the Baltimore National Heritage Area uh, and uh, someone who 
kindly volunteered to be here this morning, agreed to be here this morning, uh, to answer questions about the Macon House, which uh, we've uh, always harbored and uh, some of us have uh, wondered about uh, to the point of distraction and others uh, would love to hear more about. This is uh, the future of the Macon House on Union Square. Jeff, please welcome Jeff Bucco. Brigida, is this on? Yeah. Brigida and Nick, can you help me pass out some stuff? Do you mind? It'll just, okay. And I may not have brought enough for everybody, so if people came together, if you could share, it might help. I'm Jeff Bukite. I have the honor and privilege of being the executive director of the Baltimore National Heritage Area since uh, December of 2007. I also have the curse of always having to follow wonderful presentations and acts. <laughs> Was that not great? Can we have one more round of applause? He did such a great job. So Bob asked me to um, come here today to speak to talk to you about the future of the H.L. Mencken House. Um, so actually, we're going to do this in three parts. I'm going to spend some time telling you what the Baltimore National Heritage Area is, what we do. Um, then I'm going to um, share with you kind of the timeline we're looking at for the H.L. Mencken House and then some Q&A. I'm going to spend a decent amount of time talking about what the Baltimore National Heritage Area is and what we do. Because if we're going to date and live together, et cetera, in the H.L. Mencken House, we all need to know who we, who, who we are and what we do. So that's why I want to spend time on talking about the National Heritage Area. All right, let's make sure this works. And also, by the way, if you survive my presentation, I brought a gift for everybody. So we'll see. That, that's the one thing I've got going for me. I bring gifts. All right, um, history organizations in Baltimore. Um, the Baltimore National Heritage Area has been a, around a long time, but so has a lot of other um, history organizations in Baltimore. This is a city that really loves its history. So there's a lot of us out there that are really working to promote that history and celebrate it. We have the Baltimore National Heritage Area, which is us. We have Baltimore Heritage, Inc. that's been around, I think, almost 60 years now. And a lot of times those two groups, the Baltimore National Heritage Area and Baltimore Heritage, uh, get confused. Uh, the Baltimore City Historical Society, the Commission for Historical and Architectural Preservation, the Greater Baltimore History Alliance, and the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance. Also, um, in terms of loving our history, um, we recognize and we protect our history, thanks to people that work very hard on that. Uh, we have 33 local historic districts, 200-plus uh, city landmarks, 24 national historic landmarks. We're here today because of one of those. Uh, 292 properties and districts on the National Register, and then the designation of the Baltimore National Heritage Area. And one of the things that's coming around is actually the map and guide for the Baltimore National Heritage Area. And I'll just throw out right now, when you open that up and uh, study the inside the map, you'll see that the Baltimore National Heritage Area is not the entire city limits. It's uh, 22 square miles of what we considered at the time, about 15, 20 years ago, to be the most historic sections of the city. Um, we're actually now working on a boundary expansion, um, which we'll be going through in the next few years, where we'll um, expand, expand the boundary of the Baltimore National Heritage Area, because we feel you'll see it when you look at the map. There's a lot of areas of the city that should have been included. So what in the world is a heritage area? Most people know what a park is. People know what scenic byways are. But when you talk about heritage areas, people oftentimes just glaze over and get confused. 
So really, it, heritage areas are a very simple thing. They're an economic development tool that uses heritage tourism because the fact remains, uh, the statistics show that cultural travelers, and I bet almost everyone in this room is a cultural traveler, they spend more money and they stay longer when they go places. So what um, the heritage area model does is actually take those resources that are in a city or in a rural area and it really, we uh, make them more visitor-ready and visitor-friendly so that when people come, there are wonderful attractions for them to see and they want to stay longer and spend more money. Uh, heritage areas also have a boundary, and I already talked for a minute about the, the heritage areas boundary. Um, heritage areas also are um, areas that have a certain density of historic, cultural, and natural resources. And here in Baltimore, we absolutely have that density. And Bill Pensick, who was my predecessor, many of you may have met Bill over the years, um, he was always great about sharing the fact that uh, the National Park Service put a lot of money into Philadelphia, a lot of money into uh, Boston, and all these other wonderful cities, Washington, D.C., but that money was never flowing to Baltimore, and our history is just as important as any of those other cities, and I think everyone here would agree with that. So in 2001, we were designated a state heritage area first. Um, Maryland has um, what many will argue to be the strongest state heritage area program in the nation. It was originally modeled after Pennsylvania's, um, but Pennsylvania since that time has run out of a lot of its funding for the heritage area program, whereas thanks to a lot of advocates in Maryland, we've really held on to that funding and our program has remained very strong. Uh, thanks to that funding, we receive operating support from the state. Uh, there's 13 state heritage areas now and groups within those heritage areas are able to apply for funding. And that will be important, I'll talk about it in a minute, for the H.L. Mencken House. And that's actually just a quick map that shows the heritage areas, all different, all throughout the state, all the way from Western Maryland, all the way to the shore. And I know I'm gonna to forget to say it, but when you have time when you get home, check out www.explorebaltimore.org, and I think that website is listed on the map and guide, and that'll really, you can dig in and learn more about um, our heritage area program. So what we were super excited about is that in March of 2009, after a lot of heavy lifting by a lot of my predecessors, um, Congress and the President uh, designated us a national heritage area here in Baltimore, those 22 square miles that I described. It's a program that's managed by the National Park Service. It also means that funding begins to flow from the federal government, which has been very important for us. We get about $300,000 a year, and we immediately turn $100,000 of that back out into our grants for our partners. We'll have to be reauthorized in 10 years, and there are 49 national heritage areas across the country in 32 states. Every heritage area is uh, managed differently. Here in Baltimore, we were actually born out of the mayor's office. Um, until 2011, I was actually um, a staff member of the mayor. Uh, we decided once we became a national heritage area in 2009 that we needed to begin to um, set the groundwork um, for splitting away from city government and forming our own, own nonprofit. So we did that. And in 2012, we split from city government, formed the nonprofit, and now we're able to raise funds and really work with our partners without all of the um, uh, distractions of politics. <laughs> so it actually, it's, it's a lot easier, and we're really enjoying um, that autonomy now. Uh, the heritage area goals for Baltimore, um, heritage tourism, which I already discussed, stewardship, we work hard to preserve all those landmarks and all those sites and attractions here in Baltimore. Our neighborhoods, we work hard to make them more visitor-ready and visitor-friendly. 
Uh, we do a lot of interpretive programs. Um, the, one of the challenges here in Baltimore is that Baltimore's history is so diverse. Everything from civil rights, uh, civil war, war of 1812, philanthropy, the railroad, industry, it goes on and on. And so our interpretive plan actually has four different um, kind of buckets that we put all of uh, the, that interpretation into. We really work hard to highlight all of them. Um, during the 1812 commemorations, did anybody attend celebration or spectacular, go down and see the tall ships and, and all that, a few people? Well, it's coming back. Um, so in October, make sure you come um, here to Baltimore and come downtown. Uh, we'll have Fleet Week um, from October 12th through October 17th or 19th, I believe it is. Um, but the Heritage Area is a big partner with these 1812 and naval and maritime activities. Um, back in uh, during Spectacular and Celebration in 2012 and 2014, we distributed um, 160,000 passports, 800 commemorative coins. We did history happy hours. We did fashion shows here at the Maryland Historical Society. And like I said, we're excited that um, Fleet Week is coming back with the Blue Angels in October. Uh, one of the things we released last year um, in 2015 was our African-American Heritage Passport. Uh, they're free to the public. It's called A Lasting Legacy. It was funded by PNC Bank and with a partnership with the mayor's office. Uh, dozens of sites throughout Baltimore with um, very important African-American history are highlighted. And we ran a contest, actually, um, where kids, because we're trying to get into the 21st century, and kids were able to post selfies of, them, of themselves standing in front of these important sites. And we ran a contest with some prizes for the kids that did the most uh, the majority of that. Our most exciting program that we just started last year um, and really kicked into high gear in the spring of this year is our Kids in Kayaks program. Uh, we had realized for years that um, kids in Baltimore, here we are, we live on the water. Kids not only were never getting out on the water, but they were afraid of the water oftentimes. Um, with this program was simply a $15,000 investment from the National Park Service, which we matched with $13,000 of city funds. We got 600 city 8th grade students out on the water, not once, but twice. And it's a great program that combines environmental stewardship uh, with a, a history lesson. Um, and also they learn a new skill and hopefully they come back and want to um, go out on the water over and over again. And thankfully we received funding again, so we're getting 600 more kids out on the water during the school year. Hopefully it cools off a little because our first program was actually canceled from the heat. That's the kids down um, the middle branch. Um, having their one of their water experiences, and that's all the kids afterwards. Um, and what we discovered, um, and there's actually a video that I think is linked from our website. These kids at the beginning of the day would be scared to death, and then by the end of the day, they would be coming back off the water with smiles on their faces. And one of our favorite parts about the whole thing is they were all on their own, not prompted by us, talking about the trash in the water. They were upset by the trash in the water. They were saying they were going to go home, and they had to. They were going to tell their friends to stop throwing water, you know, plastic bottles on the ground, because it all ends up in the bay. They did all that because they saw the pollution in the water, and so it's a real game changer for these kids, and honestly for all of us. Uh, real quickly, some of the other exciting programs that we do. Um, one of the things that we passed around, we do daily walking tours here in Baltimore from May 1st through October 31st. If you haven't taken one of our walking tours, please do. Uh, they leave from the Inner Harbor Visitor Center. We also manage the Charles Street National Scenic Byway. Um, and not only are we a national heritage area, um, but in that same year, in December of 2009, uh, Charles Street was designated a national scenic byway, one of the only urban byways um, in the country. Um, can, you, can anybody here tell me what probably one of the most famous, um, there's three urban 
National Scenic Byways. Can somebody tell me what the most famous one is? Anybody? Oh, that's a good one. That would be a good one. It's actually the Strip in Las Vegas is a National Scenic Byway. So, yeah. So there's uh, an urban one in uh, Minnesota, uh, and then the Strip, and then the Charles Street National Scenic Byway. Uh, we also run the Authentic Baltimore program, uh, where our partners can really highlight the fact that they are, um, when visitors come to Baltimore, they want an authentic experience that they can only get here, and that's the purpose of the Authentic Baltimore program. Uh, so just check that out by going to AuthenticBaltimore.org. Um, we do tour guide training and certification, so we can try to get all the tour guides here in Baltimore kind of speaking, the, you know, sharing the same facts and consistent facts, correct facts, um, when they're giving tours. We also do a lecture series at City Hall every year. And then I already mentioned Fleet Week coming. Uh, coming soon, we're going to do a new walking tour on the west side, which will include the H.L. Mencken House. Uh, we're really going to kick off um, what we're going to call a Heritage Neighborhoods Program, which we're still defining. And then super exciting, it'll just be announced um, probably next month, um, probably towards the end of the month, uh, we received, uh, well, we're about to receive $85,000 from the National Park Service uh, f to hire an urban fellow who will concentrate here in Baltimore and Baltimore's neighborhoods um, through our um, heritage programs that we manage. So we're super excited about that. I uh, just wanted to share the economic impact. You know, it's not just talk, it's it's real, and that's why we're all so, that's so important on this heritage tourism stuff. Star Spangled Spectacular alone, 1.43 million attendees, 15% from outside Maryland, 75% from outside Baltimore, a direct impact of $96.53 million. So this is, it's big money and it's important to all of us and it's important to um, Baltimore's residents um, so that we can create a better world for everybody by really increasing tourism here to Baltimore. Uh, just a couple more slides. Uh, leveraging partnerships. We have over 200 active partners that we work with on a daily basis. A lot of those are through our grant programs. I know Brigida and Nick have taken advantage of a lot of those. Um, our local National Park Service partner is Fort McHenry um, National Monument and Historic Shrine. And perhaps our biggest challenge now that we're apart from the mayor's office and we're our own nonprofit is not competing with our partners for funding. Uh, we run three grant programs every year. One is a $100,000 small capital grant program where any um, museum here in the city, any group can apply um, to receive up to $15,000 to do a small capital project. It can be fixing a sidewalk, fixing gutters, whatever they need for their historic home or their attraction. Uh, we also manage the Maryland Heritage Areas Authority grants where we bring $300,000 to $400,000 to the city and our partners every year. And then our grant program that we just started um, is actually the year before last, so we're, we're now in our third cycle. Um, this will be uh, our third $100,000, so we've now given out $300,000 um, of federal funding um, to our partners through our Heritage, Heritage Investment Grant Program. Okay, so the reason why we're here, and you just, I really wanted to share that so you know who in the world this group is um, that is potentially coming in to work with all of you to reopen and manage the H.L. Mencken House. And so, um, basically, you know, we've been around here in Baltimore for a long time. Um, I think probably everyone in the room knows that um, the Hensi estate was given to Baltimore. It's almost $3 million. Um, when I started in December 2007, we had just learned about this $3 million. Um, so we've all been watching that, um, really basically watching it not really go anywhere. Um, and I think everyone has been increasingly frustrated with that because what organization would not like to have $3 million sitting there ready to, you know, reopen a National Historic Landmark? 
Uh, so Courtney Wilson with the B&O Railroad Museum, um, I guess it was in the spring of 2015, uh, was hired by the city uh, to do a study and to look at what are the viable options for using this funding and getting the H.L. Macon House back open. So he completed his study, he presented it to the city, um, talked to uh, my board of directors, and then what happened is the city approached us and they said, would the Baltimore National Heritage Area consider working with the city to manage the house and get the house back open to the public? So what we are involved in now is that process of working on the lease and coming up with an agreement, working with the partners so we can define what that looks like. Um, so uh, the overall management of the house would be by the Baltimore National Heritage Area. We would be the ones going in every day, opening the doors um, and getting the house open, making sure the lights are on, the heater air conditioning is on. Um, we would be housing uh, three full-time staff and one part-time staff member, and there would be some meeting space um, for all of us to use. Uh, programming interp and interpretation would be managed by the Friends of H.L. Mencken. Uh, new exhibits would be designed and um, placed into the house. Uh, they would be responsible for opening the house for visitors and tours, and also the house would obviously be available for the wonderful special events that I've heard um, the groups have done over the years that really they need to come back and we really need to strengthen and get those events happening again. In terms of the timeline, uh, we were developing a cooperative operations plan between the National Heritage Area and the Friends Group. That was Our goal was to get that done in June. Uh, our, my staff member, Jason Vaughn, is putting the final touches on that, and then we're going to review it with the Friends. Uh, we just want to get that in place so that we all know like kind of how we're going to operate together. Uh, we're going to finalize a lease agreement with the city by the end of November. We want to do that before uh, this mayor, who's a real fan um, of the Baltimore National Heritage Area, before she um, transfers out of office. We want to get this done now while she's there. Um, if this all goes well, RFPs for construction and renovation would come out in the spring of 2017. Renovations would then begin after all the negotiations and uh, contractors are chosen. Uh, renovations would begin probably, honestly, earlier than J December 2017, but for sake of a timeline we were saying December through August of 2018. Simultaneous with that, during all 2017-2018, we'd be doing exhibit development and fundraising. And I mentioned early on those grants from the Maryland Heritage Areas Authority and the Heritage, Heritage Investment Grants. We'd be working with the Friends groups to actually um, really nail down some of those grants um, to pay for the design and fabrication of those exhibits. And all of this with a goal of reopening the H.L. Macon House to the public on September 12, 2018. So we're very excited about this opportunity. Um, we are not taking it lightly, uh, talking to other directors of National Heritage Areas across the country. Um, National Heritage Areas, our business is not to come in and manage a house, um, a historic home. That's really not what we're meant to do. So what our goal is to get the house open and really set the infrastructure in place, and then it will be up to all of you and the friends um, to really um, operate in the interpretation and the um, openness um, reopen for in terms of programming the HL Macon House to the public. So I think we wanted to do some Q&A because this is a great opportunity with all of you in a room and I'm happy to answer um, any questions uh, that you might have. So I'm all yours. <laughs>